This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Tony Trippany, CFO of Corning Incorporated, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 630. Just because it's a software as a service model as opposed to sort of an on-prem install, that it's still a commitment, right? We are going to invest resources. Uh, the license that you're now getting from this technology we built, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went in there. And uh, and we also need you to be engaged with this and to also make sure that you get value out of it, right? And uh, and by paying um, uh, the bulk of it up front, you're showing that, right? And I think that's that's one of the things that I'm also obsessed with is really, you know, what are, what are our payment terms? Um, because that is also the beauty of a SaaS business. You know, the more you have up front, in a way you can enlist your customers to help fund your growth. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Bennett Tymon, CFO of Applicaster, a SaaS developer specializing in the development and lifecycle management of media applications. As you'll learn, Bennett's finance career took root at the intersection of technology and media, where he has since served as CFO for several different high-growth firms. Bennett's career path is actually rather unique. I think uh, you'll enjoy learning about uh, his early career years, particularly, as well as what he has to say about finance sales collaboration. (laughs) He clearly has spent quite a few career hours navigating that relationship and has some insights to share. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. We're speaking with Bennett Tymon, CFO of Applicaster. Bennett, welcome. Uh, hello. Glad to be here. How are you? We're doing well, sir. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, we're going to begin where we always do, which is to ask our guests to look back for us and tell us a little bit about themselves and those experiences, more specifically, those experiences which prepared them for a finance leadership role. What comes to mind for you, Bennett? 
So maybe before I start about the career in and of itself, I'm going to talk a little bit about my academic background. Um, you know, I basically I uh, studied economics and also have an MBA in finance and investments. Uh, and this is, I guess, I, is really a, a, my way of saying I got probably uh, uh, into a finance role, not necessarily because I plan on having a career in finance, but I always liked, you know, problem solving through metrics, numbers, quantitative, sort of like in a quantitative approach, facts and figures. Uh, even as a, as a teenager, I was interested in economics. I would read the economic section and growth rates and those types of things. And so I think I had a little knack with statistics, numbers and, and, uh, and uh, sort of living in a, in a metricized world. And I guess in a way, then uh, ending up in a, in a finance role was almost a logical thing, right? So that's basically kind of from my academic background, sort of how my mind works. Um, and if I were to look at my first sort of job experiences, um, I think um, let me share three of those. So my first role was when I was working in a big media company um, over uh, over in Germany, where I'm originally from, uh, called uh, Gruner and Yar. It was the magazine division of Bertelsmann, a big uh, a big multi-billion dollar uh, 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 media company that had uh, not just magazines, but also TV, radio stations, internet businesses, logistics businesses, etc. And this was in the 90s. And so uh, I actually was uh, running um, the office of the president of the uh, German magazine division, which is a million dollar plus division, and uh, as sort of his chief of staff, right? And so uh, it exposed me pretty much to how uh, big companies think about uh, at the top, right? So what is what is it actually, you know, how do how do companies uh, come up with the decisions and how why do they behave the way they behave? And we, you know, if we're not insiders, we only read about it in the press or on, on podcasts or something like that, right? And so uh, it exposed me to that sort of like very high level strategic thinking. I also had a very good time there. Um, in the sense that while I was there, there was a lot going on. We, uh, we launched magazines, we sold magazines, we bought magazines. You know, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of action, and and I was privy to all this information. And so, what was uh, really interesting also is my role as I was sort of the gatekeeper also between the senior management and the board. And so, my job was to help senior management to translate whatever investment needs, proposals, budget requests, etc., what they needed uh, to get done, and they needed money. I helped them to prepare those uh, those uh, those uh, those board documents, i.e., business cases. So I'd say, you know, from my perspective, it was, was like, okay, I actually, uh, when we go back to the question, you know, what prepared me to be a finance leader is, is uh, sort of the business case builder, right? A finance leader is a business case builder, even though my job wasn't the finance role per se, but I helped obviously those people also with the help of our FP&A department, uh, financial planning department, to present those cases and pitch to the board why we should be spending a million dollars on digitizing the archives or whatever it may be, right? So that was number one. Um, I think the second thing then was when I had my first real finance job, I was, uh, you know, uh, head of FP&A for, uh, uh, for Grunyar in the United States. We were a fairly large company, about 700 people, $450 million in revenue. And I was involved in all the, the FP&A, the black books, the planning, the budgeting and all that. Uh, but that's not even that, that important. What's more important is that I was, that was my first job as a department head. And so I had a department of like seven people that had financial managers, right, that were the business managers at the end of the day for all the senior execs, the publishers, the editors in chief, et cetera, in the company. And my, my department uh, was obviously a corporate department. And there were other corporate departments, you know, you have like you know, HR, you had even like production, et cetera, et cetera, illegal. And our CEO at the time uh, had this uh, thing where once a year we do a survey and ask people, so 
the operators, right? So what do you think about, uh, you know, uh, the legal department? What do you think about the FPNA group? What do you think about HR, et cetera? Do you, do you get good service? And uh, when I first joined, my department was frankly not in very good shape, right? So I, uh, I basically got very low grades. And of course, the first year or the first six months, you say, well, it's not my fault. I didn't hire these people. Uh, uh, and then the second year, you know, you still haven't any progress. You're like, what's going wrong, right? And anyway, so over a two and a half year period, I ended up, you know, uh, um, promoting certain people. I had also some, you know, turnover issues at the time. The late 90s was very hard to hold on to talent uh, and so forth, especially because we were not necessarily paying, you know, above market for sure. We were sort of more frugal than maybe some of the competitors out there. And uh, but to cut a long story short, I managed to essentially rebuild the department, stabilize the structure. And within a two year period, it went from the one of the worst rated departments to one of the best rated departments. And what I thought what I took away from that is, uh, you know, that uh, you really should think also finance group as a service department. Right. So finance leader also has to have a service mentality. And you are essentially um, if you do your job well, people will come to you for advice, for help, for analytical thinking, for all the things that they might not be very good with or that they're not comfortable with and so early 2000s I moved up to Boston we have you know acquired like uh, two properties Inc and fast company magazines websites events businesses etc and I was actually PL responsible right which means of course I still dealt with numbers but I was also an operator so I'd actually uh, managers report to me and so forth and so what it really taught me is that in order to be effective as a finance leader right you you need to know the business right I mean nobody can of course uh, you know have all the function know how in a company we know that the first that you rise or the higher you rise, the more it's about management know-how and the less it is about actually knowing how to do something specifically as it pertains to a job function. But I thought, um, you know, for me, it has made me a better manager because you have more empathy because all of a sudden you as an operator and you as a person being responsible for your P&Ls, you get that call from the CFO, right? I had a CFO then, okay, you missed your revenue by X percent. What are you going to do about it? And all of a sudden you are, you are, you are now on the on the receiving end of uh, of uh, people like me in today's job, and I think when you've gone through this and you have had this experience, um, I think you have more empathy, and I think you are getting better at at um, at dealing with the people that uh, that come to you or that you have to say no to. Because I think uh, oftentimes, obviously, as a finance leader, it's also about um, you know setting people on the right track. Um, there's never enough resources in any organization. At the end of the day, it's also uh, always about allocating resources. And if you basically are the one that is making the arbitrage, give more to sales, that's to R&D, or give more to this department versus another, if you actually have at least an inkling uh, about the business, you know, I think you just make better decisions, and, and you certainly also are better capable of explaining those decisions to whoever you need to explain it to. Um, I think it's very, very helpful to have had some scars from having been in, the, in an operational seat as well. Okay, well, thank you for those. Ending with the uh, the operational experience, uh, the department head experience, where you, uh, I underscored this, finance as a service department. You want people to come to you in finance as a, a business case builder. Um, all great, great takeaways for us. Thank you. You began by uh, mentioning your background in academics, as many of our guests do. But you, but yours is rather unusual, and I, and I thought our listeners might find it interesting to t- sort of trace your steps. You got a undergrad. You you've got a master's in economic. Excuse me, a, a bachelor's in economic, and then you went on to get a master's in economics. Um, was your undergrad in Germany, and then you go to Paris to get your master's, and then I want to point out you're in New York for your uh, your MBA. 
Yes, that's correct. So I started. I started actually uh, in Germany. I went to uh, to a university uh, in Nuremberg, uh, uh, which is in Bavaria, in the southern part of Germany. I did my undergraduate there, and uh, luckily, because uh, the German and the French academic systems are quite similar, uh, and I had actually learned French in high school and was kind of frustrated that I had put in seven years of effort and then never really then lost it all. I decided it would be a good thing actually to uh, to not just throw it away and. Uh, revitalize it if you will and so I did an internship uh, first in France uh, in the summer uh, uh, before after my undergraduate in, in Nuremberg and then I decided I liked it so much and I finally after two months I was fluent in French that I decided to stay and then I ended up uh, going to Paris because also you know why not live in a nice city like Paris um, and uh, moved to Paris and wanted to originally only spend one year there but then ended up also just finishing because the um, the, the French system was um, much quicker. It was a little more. Um, it was more. It was not as free flowing as maybe as the German system. Uh, much more rigorous. Much tougher. Much faster. Much more. You know, coursework crammed into a semester. Uh, but uh, I was done after after you know eight eight semesters. I had a master's degree in economics, and Germany would have taken me an extra year or two. And so that's how I ended up basically finishing out my degree in, uh, in, uh, in, in Paris. And then I came to New York uh, uh, and got an MBA at Baruch uh, and worked also on Wall Street a little bit. Yeah, which is also a, sort of an interesting chapter. I don't know if it would have been the um, where I would expect you to land next at Baruch College in New York, getting a master's in business. And then, again, you shared with us how you were the chief of the staff or <coughs> the president of the German magazine division. Uh, and that's where you return. I, I think you return to Italy and you step into that role. Do I have that right? That is correct. So, I mean, I basically graduated. Uh, you know, one thing that I did maybe with hindsight, uh, not necessarily wrong, but it was sort of in the mindset of a European, you know, Americans typically go and get an MBA after a few years of real work experience. I always worked while I was a student. But uh, uh, in Germany, it's more common to actually have your full academic career you know, done, and then you go into business. You don't have these interruptions, and so it's a little unusual. However, uh, in Germany, people very much appreciate uh, international experience and uh, being multilingual, and that actually gave me, I think, the edge to actually even get into into this company because I did not have um, a, a, the, the, the typical sort of background where I only started in Germany and maybe even got a PhD, which is very common in Germany as well for people to have a PhD. Uh, but I had the MBA and I basically I spoke French, I spoke English, I lived abroad. And I think uh, that's actually how um, they, uh, they, uh, they uh, you know, how I, I could position myself and think it should give me a shot because it was quite competitive to get into this company. It was a very well-regarded company at the time. When you do come to New York in your career, it's the late 90s or mid to late 90s, and you are, uh, it's media. Uh, now, do you picture yourself sort of as a finance executive or sort of a, a media executive? Does, does it matter in your mind? What was your frame of mind, really? Um, I think it has, has somewhat evolved over time. Uh, I think I was certainly, um, when I when I first joined uh, the big media company, I thought of myself as a media executive, obviously with a very strong finance background. But as I said earlier in my introductory remarks, uh, I didn't necessarily picture being a CFO per se. That wasn't necessarily a career goal that I had written down, uh, you know, that I want to be the head of finance for small, large, whatever uh, organization, or even specifically in a, in a media company. Um, but then somehow I gravitated towards it because I felt like, you know, when I ran the FBNA department, 
but it gave me really, really good insights, right? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I like to think about it, you know, if, math, if, if mathematics is the language of natural sciences, then the numbers are the language of business, right? I mean, you can, uh, you can have tons of meetings where everybody says, oh, the customer is really happy, the product is great, uh, you know, the market is good, uh, all sorts of things. But what does that really mean, right? If it's really a product, if the product is great, you can charge a pretty penny, then your margins will be good. You will have high renewal rates or whatever your metrics are. I know we get to that later in the, in the podcast. And so that for me was sort of a way of looking under the hood, right? The numbers don't lie. And also, um, obviously, in senior management, at the end of the day, um, companies are led through the numbers, right? Uh, uh, that's that's how it works. Now, from the late 90s on forward, you have built your career mostly uh, or entirely in the New York uh, area. Is that right? That is correct. I'm yes, curious why. I, uh... Uh, and again, uh, you get into the startup world or the small to medium business world as you begin to get into some of these smaller co companies and helping them grow. And you have several uh, CFO roles. I just want to share that with our, our audience quickly. So my, my line of questioning is kind of like, I'm surprised you weren't lured to Silicon Valley at some point. Um, then again, you think of yourself as media, perhaps, and New York is home now. I don't know. What would you what would you tell us as you as you go down your your career trajectory here? Um, it's a very fair statement to say that I, uh, you know, uh, have always been focused on New York or even the East Coast. I mean, I lived in Boston for two years um, and then came back to New York. Um, it's uh, it's uh, the two reasons, main reasons, of course, New York has um, a very, very rich job market, like a very diverse job market. That's one thing. I love New York City, obviously, as a city that, that goes without saying no one lives in New York. They don't like it, uh, certainly not for a long time. <laughs> it's too tough a place you know, to be in if you don't like it or if you don't love it. <laughs> uh, and um, and then um, the reason also is, you know, my wife and I, I mean, we're both from Europe. You know, my wife is from France. I'm from Germany. And uh, so, you know, jumping on a plane for uh, my father's 70th birthday, those are the types of things you can do on a four day trip from the West Coast. You know, you had the three hours it's just more of a hassle and uh and so i think uh in a way uh as also the new york ecosystem and the startup environment has really thrived and prospered over the last uh well let's say 10 years i think is really uh where it's come into its own after sort of the early the internet 1.0 and silicon alley uh of the of the late 90s or early 2000s um i think new york is a is now for people who work in tech or in, in the startup world is a is a very good place to be a, um it's, it's a top destination now um and that wasn't the case certainly 15 or 20 years ago right it was all about silicon valley or maybe boston or maybe austin and then new york is now is a is a full-on a validated member of that ecosystem. Well, we want to uh, touch on your career again during the mentoring round, but right now let's find out about Applicaster, uh, which you joined in October 2019, so not all that long ago. Uh, but tell us, what is Applicaster? What does it do and what are its offerings today? So Applicaster, I try to be very simplistic. Applicaster, you know, simplifies the creation and the delivery and the management of video applications. So our target uh, um, customers are mostly, I mean, mainly media companies that have video content. And uh, what we actually are about is we believe, now I'm giving you a marketing pitch that is probably not exactly how marketing would talk about it. Uh, we believe that we're really the only true um, video application uh, management platform out there um, that really allows companies to uh, bring apps out to the market on our platform uh, uh, quickly. Now, I have to be careful what quickly means. I'll try to qualify that a little bit. But the idea is, you know, that we have a platform 
and whether you are deciding to uh, build uh, your own apps on the platform with an in-house team, whether you enable uh, a third party to build apps on our, on our platform, uh, whether you want us to help you launch an app, um, we can do that too as sort of a professional service or support level. Uh, but basically our platform allows you to do is to get the stuff done uh, uh, relatively fast, uh, and sometimes in, in as little um, time as weeks, uh, depending on how complex it is, how much you want. Uh, sometimes it takes months, uh, but we have also a marketplace. So the stuff that we don't necessarily, we don't, we don't know, we're not an end-to-end -end closed solution, but we're allowing you very quickly to plug in whatever you need, your analytics, your, your DSP, uh, I mean, sort of your, your content management system, those types of things. And um, and uh, what what our pitch is really to the industry is that nothing is ever perfect, right? Don't wait for one year, spend a million dollars with an outside or internal resources only to then find out that you have traction with your audience or that it works. With us, you can come out quicker, more quickly. You can iterate, you know, you can add things, you can drop things. You don't have a vendor lock because we're not tying you into every single thing. Now we are just the platform. We basically are doing the hard stuff to get you out on you know mobile on uh, on amazon on uh, lg on samsung on the television platforms and so um maybe i was already too concrete but thematically speaking we're obviously touching into this whole idea that people are streaming more and more and more and this also is in the context of the cable cutting uh, or the cord cutting rather right and we're basically playing in that wheelhouse that our that, that publishers and media companies uh, all are now toying around or implementing, uh, as we've seen, a direct-to-consumer uh, uh, strategies, right? They don't want to just, like, you know, be blocked by the cable operators. They can now also directly go to the consumer thanks to streaming technology. Now, what can you give us a, a sense of what stage uh, the company is currently? It's uh, Are you raising money these days, or what, where are you? Well, uh, we're not in uh, money raising mode. Um, we did just go through a, a raise uh, internally that was actually uh, planned um, uh, even before uh, before COVID hit. And so uh, as far as that's concerned, we don't have any immediate plans um, to go back to the well. Um, we're obviously a growth company. Um, being a private company, I don't want to necessarily share like real figures with you as you, as you, as you may understand, but we're definitely, um, you know, in a, in a, going through the phase of, of, of uh, well, hyper growth is maybe a big word, but we're in a, you know, we're in a fast growing the 50% plus ish. Uh, that's the goal. And our investors also raised the money uh, on the promise that we're, we're going to continue to grow um, despite uh, the, uh, the difficult macroeconomic environment. Now you, uh, as I mentioned, you have been a CFO and in the C-suite of a number of different uh, early stage companies and fast growing companies in the past. Uh, in fact, you were a CEO as well in the past. And I'm wondering uh, if you, years from now, when you look back at your Applicaster chapter, uh, that you just opened, what sets it apart from those other chapters? What will you achieve here? What is it going to be? Oh, that's a very, that's a loaded question. <laughs> well, we know that uh, uh, different CFO tours of duty allows uh, finance leaders to accomplish uh, different feats. And, uh, you know, there's always different takeaways as well. Uh, but what would you expect from this one? Yes, I think um, I can maybe um, 
rephrase what you're saying by saying, what was it that attracted me to AppleCaster, right? In a nutshell, right? without going into every, every single detail, uh, you know, as you know, what I really, uh, what it really attracted me to AppleCaster is um, that I felt like it was a true product company. So I really felt like the, the platform um, uh, and that, uh, that the solution that they deliver, there's a real uh, product market fit, there's a real need for it. Um, I was convinced after talking to everybody that there really wasn't anything else out there. And this is one of those rare breeds in the tech space where the product should really make a difference, right? We know we have a lot of companies that are tech companies and there's a lot of companies that have good tech and that's perfectly fine. You have competitors, they have very similar and good tech, but uh, there's not truly at the end of the day, real product differentiation, right? A lot of companies rise and fall. Uh, 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 last but not least, because of their branding, their customer success, all the stuff that your marketing, your financial discipline, all the stuff that uh, you would also have in the in, the, in manufacturing or in, in in traditional industries, right? And I think that was really the one thing which I found interesting. So I thought that there was a product um, that really could make a difference or is different from the rest of the industry. And then what attracted to me as well is that, you know, obviously people like me don't get hired into companies. If everything is hunky dory, um, you always have to obviously help the company, uh, build scale and, and build for scale. So I, um, you know, I, I was attracted by the fact that there was a lot of my past experience, both in media, as well as in SaaS companies and software companies, uh, to basically look at the, uh, you know, how the company is organized, uh, it's go to market, you know, uh, do we have, uh, you know, the right size sales team? Do we have, uh, uh, the right demand generation. Do we have all these components and pieces of the puzzle uh, uh, and uh, sales operations? You know, uh, sort of the, the stuff that makes um, a good a good tech company or a good software company work. And um, and that's basically been the been I think the attraction to take. I don't want to say it was a diamond in the rough, but for the purpose of this thing, it's a diamond in the rough, and I could lot to I could do a lot to help. Like polish and scale it. Now, if I asked you this question nine months ago, it would likely be different, but uh, we're curious what the top of mind numbers are. Everyone, every company out there is watching their cash flow uh, these days, but can you share with us some of those top of mind metrics, numbers that you're paying close attention to these days? Um, yes, of course. I mean, cash flow goes without saying that is always a concern for any growth company and any company that is obviously still not generating uh, positive cash flow on a consistent basis. Um, so uh, that's, of course, one thing that I very much watch. So when you look at like, what I'm really looking at a daily basis obsessively is obviously, you know, our sales forecast, our revenue forecast in a nutshell, because that drives how much we can afford in terms of the cost structure. Um, and uh, I look at uh, pipeline creation as well. I really look at, okay, if the sales team has a hard time uh, closing a deal this month, but if the pipeline is growing and we're having real conversations and we're late stage conversations, how real are those? So those are the types of things that I really, really, um, you know, look at um, obsessively um, from the top line perspective, uh, because ultimately, you know, the game um, that, uh, that Applicast is and other growth companies is not that you save yourself to prosperity, uh, but you really grow yourself into prosperity, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the point. It is, of course, uh, in the current environment, um, harder uh, to hit your numbers just because uh, in and this is not just specific to obviously our our customer segment but in general uh, you know when people are going through a financial crisis or a recession or, or you know difficult economic times there there's usually a lot of hesitation right uh, to actually commit also to tech purchases and so that's something that we are we're also uh, struggling with uh, obviously uh, like many others in in, uh, in, in the industry. 
Um, but uh, so that's my first and foremost. But then, of course, I look at you know the 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 very uh, traditional uh, SaaS metrics, uh, and of course, I don't know how much you want me to geek out on those. But there are there are certain ones that I like more than others. Uh, but it would be you know um, your uh, average revenue per customer. It's of course your retention key one. You know what is your net retention? What is your gross retention? Do you have a land and expand strategy, or is it really about net new logo acquisition? Uh, what does your gross margin look like? Do you have a product that still you know requires lots and lots of little hands and feet to make the customer successful? Right? Um, do you actually? Uh, you know, what's your breakout between recurring revenue versus one-time revenue, those types of things, which, you know, are often um, a bit convoluted in certain, in certain companies. And uh, my goal is always to figure out, is it a true, is it a true software company? Uh, or is it essentially a, a nicely managed professional services organization that masquerades as a software company because they have a little bit of tech somewhere, but at the end of the day, all the value creation is in the hands and feet they provide and they just upsell manpower right which is not that interesting as you look to get a read on the on the sales pipeline have you uh, as the finance leader sought to educate the sales team better maybe with a certain set of numbers or make one particular number a little more uh accessible to the team so they can understand better why you're asking uh for certain limitations or whatever uh, the circumstances might be again are you making numbers available to them how are you collaborating i guess is the question uh, well, we obviously we have um, our our standard uh, forecast meetings. We drive the company off of Salesforce, so we have actually uh, you know all the the deals that are uh, in in uh, in in play uh, are are obviously in Salesforce, and so we have uh, the, the fairly standard. Uh, methodology where you just look at a gross pipeline. Let's say your gross pipeline for a quarter is 10 million and you want 5x coverage and you say, okay, if I have 10 million gross pipeline and then I have a shot at taking closing $2 million of business, let's say that might be, it's not necessarily specifically the Applecaster case, but that's sort of a sort of a standard thing that people say 5x coverage, that's a good thing. And as you go into the quarter, through the quarter, you will find out, okay, I started with 10 million. Uh, we've closed lost two. Uh, because there's really no deal there, but then we actually won a million, and so we've got seven million left. And then you look at what the stage is in there, and you say, okay, and with these guys, we're in negotiate with these guys, we're in proposal here, we're maybe in tech vetting or whatever it is. And so these are the conversations we have on an ongoing basis. So you kind of look at the gross versus the weighted pipeline, um, and uh, that's something that we do on a very regular basis. Uh, then over time, uh, you obviously um, you know learn also um, who are the salespeople who actually are always under forecasting, who are the salespeople who are always over forecasting. My last job, I had one guy who I knew if I really wanted an answer, I don't know if I can say this on this podcast, I had to go to the bathroom with him, right? That's basically where I asked him. So what's going on there on this deal? You know, it's been sitting in pipeline for for three months and then it went straight to close, close, uh, close one. And uh, it never went through like upside or negotiate or whatever we had as a stage. So you kind of learn this. Um, and you also, obviously, um, I spend quite a bit of time with the sales leadership, always probing and asking them. So what's your best estimate? What's your gut? You know, what is going on? Do you need my help? Um, and the other thing, of course, that I do, which is going back to, um, you know, some of the uh, improvements in sort of how we run Applicasta is a uh, critical thing as well, especially in these times, is you know, the payment terms. Um, uh, for me, uh, it's very, very important when you run a software as a service business to really follow 
the logic, you know, that you get most of your money up front from your customers because you spend tens of millions on building your technology and it's not this on-prem thing anymore where somebody gives you $5 million and then, you know, you install it and you have your own. Uh, but then, uh, you know, have to basically make sure that uh, all this CapEx that you did and all this investment, you know, you also, when you can deal with your customers, that you actually get them to subscribe uh, and that they pay up front because you also want them to understand that, uh, just because it's a software as a service model as opposed to sort of an on-prem install, that it's still a, uh, it's a serious commitment, right? We're going to invest resources. Uh, the license that you're now getting from this technology we built, a lot of blood, sweat and tears went in there. And, uh, and we also need you to be engaged with this and to also make sure that you get value out of it, right? And, uh, and by paying um, uh, the bulk of it up front, you're showing that, right? And I think that's, that's one of the things that I'm also obsessed with is really, you know, what are, what are our payment terms? Um, because that is also the beauty of a SaaS business. You know, the more you have up front, in a way, you can enlist your customers to help fund your You know, one of the uh, areas I was wondering if we could touch on with you, just because it, it, you, your understanding of the inner workings there seemed to be, um, you know, speaking from years of experience uh, in terms of talent and rewarding talent. And it, when you uh, were a CEO, when you were a finance leader, you, you had an idea of how people are being compensated and which behaviors were, were advancing within the organization, good and bad, and how compensation may have had something to do with that. Um, along the way, have you ever uh, said this is ridiculous. We have to do this differently. We're, we're encouraging some of the negative behaviors here. And, and again, I'm sorry to put you on the spot with this, but I'm just curious. I'm sure there's been times where you have thought about talent. You know who uh, the people are performing within the company. And yet, you know, that a certain percentage um, are not perhaps receiving all of what they should. And others are, you know, getting more than they should. I don't know if that's a dynamic you, you see too often, but what would you tell us? Any, any, thoughts on talent and compensation today? Yes, for sure. Uh, let me maybe split um, this into two types of employees um, uh, to talk sort of conceptually. There's basically salespeople uh, or commission people, but I'm, let's talk about salespeople so I can be more harsh in my, <laughs> my comments. They can take and it. Then, uh, and then let's, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then we have sort of the, uh, the rest of the organization, right? So when it comes to uh, salespeople, um, you know, I think, uh, it's relatively easy uh, to have, you know, uh, to identify talent because a salesperson at the end of the day rises or falls by the numbers uh, he or she puts on the clock. Um, and so um, nobody has ever retained a salesperson because they were really, really nice or they worked really, really well with other parts of the company or because, you know, they are a fantastic softball player or whatever the whatever it is, right? So the reality is, you no know, salespeople, they kind of like make their own luck. And so when it comes to rewarding sales talent and uh, and uh, and making sure that the sales talent knows uh, that they are, are taken care of, uh, my philosophy has always been, you want to be very generous with, uh, with your top people and only just with the top of generous salespeople. So I've never been a believer in, you know, a capping commission or, or uh, those types of things, right? I'm not a believer in only paying salespeople, for instance, until we've collected. First of all, it's like a, it's a real nightmare to, to aggregate everything and do this accounting. And again, being a startup, you know, I have better things to do than having my, my accounting team figuring exactly out the collection match to this and then, you know, release like monthly little adjustments and, and all that stuff. So I'm usually uh, um, uh, in favor of, of giving salespeople really generous commission plans that they can make a ton of money when they perform. Uh, don't cap it, pay them quickly, 
um, and uh, and give them the love that they deserve and also recognize them. And like in my last job, you know, when people closed the deal and they were, you know, there was a good deal, I would basically out of my own pocket buy a bottle of champagne because I always said to them, I know that you pay my salary. I, I'm just overhead. I know that without you, without you, I'm not here. So, no. And so, and I think they really recognize that. But I also think it's very important, uh, the obvious, then, okay, if somebody is really not performing, then, uh, you know, you, be, you need to be intellectually honest. Is it really because, you know, there's, there's an issue with they didn't have enough pipeline or the company's product really sucks or whatever it may be. But generally speaking, uh, with sales teams, it's, it's relatively easy to, uh, to, uh, to identify what you need to do. Um, for the rest of the organization, I have this philosophy that you need to know who your top players are. My experience has been, no matter whether it's a small or large organization, at the end of the day, there's always five, six, seven, ten people or so that you know as long as they're with you, nothing will go wrong. You will manage through any crisis, through any downturn, through any stressful M&A, whatever it might be. And so I think what I always do when I come into new organizations, also I, I ask the, the, the head of the people or even you know people at the manager level, tell me you know who are the people that you really, really, really don't want to lose. Right? So that when you come to me with like, hey, I want to give more money to this person, I want to retain this person, that I know it's it's not just because you want to do right by everybody, right? Uh, that we're not we're not having the compensation conversation when it's budget time to do so, but that I know beforehand, okay, this is really a person I already know we don't want to lose them, and then I can rationalize why uh, you know we're going above some certain threshold that you might have for annual salary increases or, or those types of things. So I think um, it's very very important to to uh, to uh, you know, be be aware as the finance leader also who we are talking. And it's interesting about. that you said you you would talk to uh, the HR leader or the the person in charge, and let them help you uh, identify them, understanding, uh, you know, what are the common characteristics that those people have in common. And one would think that maybe it's something cultural, maybe it's something that helps the company function in a way uh, better. Or you know, they're not all necessarily top performers in what they do but somehow they give back to the company in different ways. I mean, you're leaving that to HR to decide or, or you're going to tell me baloney. It's not. No, 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 no. I'm not leaving that to HR, obviously, uh, especially when you're in a smaller organization and you kind of know people when you have a hundred or two or 300 people you now, which sort of like has been the company size that I've been in. And since, since my, since I moved into, into the tech world, um, you know, pretty much what people are doing. You sort of know who the people are that, that uh, seem to be always there and performing well and, and not. So it's not like I leave it just to HR, obviously. Uh, I think, uh, you know, talent retention, obviously, and company culture is a job for everyone, including the CFO. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's just that, again, the CFO is the one that needs to um, uh, soften or, or how could I say, that needs to steer the, the impulse that every manager has. You know, everybody is great. Everybody deserves 10%. Everybody should get more options. Everybody is just awesome. And you have to say, no, at some point, you've got to grade a little bit, at least. You know, I know that you have maybe, if you have an department of three, they might all be outstanding. You know, like three outstanding developers. I'm, I'm, a tech, I'm not a tech person. How do I even argue with that. I don't know. I have to believe you, right? But, uh, but you know, generally speaking, uh, when you have uh, in sales and marketing and other areas, it's pretty obvious that there's, there's people who are, who are really the, the backbone, either because they are very strong individual contributors or because they have a lot of contribution to company culture. And you, know, you have these hand raises that it's a cross-functional project. They just do it. They're always there. Uh, and they're, and they're, and they're driving the organization forward because they're, they're leaning forward. They're doing all the things to make it better. They are not afraid to say, "I have this idea," and you know, and and uh, and so they have initiative, right? And that's that that 
when people show initiative, it gets to senior management as well. It does. If you're like most companies, how do you uh, preserve uh, your cash so the company gets through this? And again, we don't know uh, where the end is at this place in time. But as a finance leader, I have to believe that's that's on your mind. But- yes, of course. So so uh, there's a two-sided answer to this. Uh, so first of all, you know, um, when you look at sort of the um, the macroeconomic environment because of the, the COVID crisis, um, we were somewhat fortunate uh, as Applicaster. I'm talking specifically about Applicaster, that you know we are operating in a in a sector of the economy uh, that has not been, um, uh, to be blunt, shut down by the government. Let's say, for lack of a better word, right? So we're in an industry where nobody said you cannot stream videos at home. <laughs> nobody said you can't watch uh, anything you want, and also uh, through the consumers. And nobody has told the media companies you have to stop uh, showing content or you have to stop airing, even if we talk about analog television or so. So I think we are very, very fortunate in, a, in the case of Applicast that we're in a segment of the economy. If anything, uh, consumer adoption is greater than ever, right? So in a way, it's accelerating our, uh, you know, uh, sort of our sort of uh, growth hypothesis, right? Because consumer adoption is then is accelerating. Having said that, obviously, uh, going back to what I said earlier, part of the part of the mission that I also had when I came into the company was to make the company better. And so we already, since my arrival, we took a number of measures uh, already to make the company more efficient, reoriented uh, more towards a true SaaS model, decide what's the ideal customer profile, how to become better. And so we did quite a bit of work on that even pre-COVID, and we have basically executed against that plan so that we were not obligated to uh, to go into any, um, you know, um, I, don't, I don't want to call that rash because that's unfair, it's judgmental, but we didn't have to do some of the brutal things that other companies had to do just to survive. You know, we did not have to go through just, okay, we're going to slash everybody by 30% or else, you know, the company folds. We are, we're not in that situation, fortunately. But having said that, you know, uh, depending on how well we do in Q3 and in Q4, we will, of course, uh, have to think long and hard about how to uh, also preserve cash. Right? Very clearly, we have uh, we have not a large margin of error uh, like like most of our our peers uh, in in the tech in the startup world, um, and so we're obviously evaluating that um, um, literally on a monthly basis. You know, I don't do like a budget at the beginning of the year and then never look at it again. We're doing like real time. You know, I'm obsessed with okay, what's my collection cycle? You know, what does my AP look like? You know, what's my working capital? And uh, okay, if I don't book this this month, and I assuming I'm going to get this bill only paid in a week from now, in, in, in a month from now. So we're doing all these things to be very very tactical. And, um, and uh, you know, the reality is, um, uh, you know, and I think it's probably true for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the organizations out there is um, at the end of the day, you need to have the belief that long term, it's still a good thing, right? And you have a temporary dip. Uh, or is it something where you really say, you know, structurally, it's never going to get any better or it's too long, um, this, 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 this difficult situation. So let's just hunker down. Uh, give up on growth, you know, reduce further what you spend on sales and marketing, make sure we retain uh, the customers we have, make them really, really happy and focus only on upselling. Don't do net new logo acquisitions. I mean, there's a bunch of things that you can do. And uh, we internally, we obviously um, have uh, in full uh, full cooperation with our, our board and our investors, we have sort of these trigger lines and we know exactly, you know, what our criteria are to uh, 
to steer the company uh, through this for this difficult environment. Interesting. Well, thank you. I asked you a few extra questions, Ben. And thank you very much for allowing me to do that. We're going to move to our finance strategic moment question, where we're looking for a particular piece of insight that you uh, experienced, you garnered along the way, uh, given your lines of sight into the organization. Again, this might have been earlier in your career, uh, or it might have been the last six months. Anything come to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Um, I, I hope it's a strategic moment. You tell me, I'll let you be the judge of it. Uh, but actually my first formal uh, CFO job that I ever took when I got my first CFO title was at a company called um, Selfish Media. We were a mobile content publisher with a direct-to-consumer business and also an on-deck business. So I, uh, I know this is a little bit of jargon, but what we did is was in the mid-2000s. And we essentially sold, you know, ringtones, wallpapers, text chat, uh, on the carrier's decks, which was the, the wireless application protocol on the web. It was basically the mobile web, if you will. And this was pre-iPhone, right? And so at the time, the sport was for teenagers specifically and young adults to turn their feature phones into entertainment devices before there was such a thing as a smartphone, i.e. The, the first iPhone. And so there were a bunch of companies that did quite nice business, including Selfish. And so um, when I got there, um, uh, you know, the company was kind of stuck at a 10 million, give or take, revenue. Uh, and, uh, and the reason was that they had some of this sort of like on-deck business with the big carriers, you know, where they had distribution deals with AT&T, or was, was called Singular before it went back to AT&T and Verizon and Sprint, etc. But uh, they were sort of stuck and they had this nascent or uh, sort of direct-to-consumer business um that uh they didn't quite know how to get off the ground in the us they had done it in the in france for a while actually they were part of lagardere group which is a big french conglomerate uh and in france they had sort of built a business where they advertised mostly in sort of in magazines and drove actually eyeballs to magazine pages and then basically these in the, in the magazine pages the the teenagers would say okay now i'm going to download you know i'm going to basically uh you know uh pay for a ringtone or something like that and so uh basically what i did is i i saw that they didn't really have a model they didn't have a, a customer acquisition or a subscription model anything like that they just had this theory in france we're going to spend 20 percent of our revenue on marketing and that never made any sense to me. I, just, I, I don't know how, why, because why, why do you know? So when your revenue goes up, you spend more on marketing and that's a good thing. And uh, I have no idea. Do you have any, do you have any ideas about customer retention, anything like that? And so uh, cut a long story short, I built a role model by partnering with the head of product. They had this beautiful cohort analysis. You know, when I sign up somebody in month one, they stay for two months, three months, four months, and they consume this much dollar, this many dollars every month. And so basically I built, uh, I built a subscription model and it was basically about surfing the magic triangle between customer revenue or average revenue per user, ARPU, which is a metric that I think many people in the audience will know, uh, your cost of acquisition, and then the churn, right? And so um, we knew what our gross margin was, so we did the lifetime value. And as long as you know the relationship between lifetime value and CAC was in a certain, uh, uh, in a certain relationship, we could spend all the money we want. And so we basically get, got to a point where by partnering with the CMO, I explained all this to them. I said to him, you know, as long as your cost per acquisition is $10 or less, I don't care. You can spend $3 million a month. I don't care because I know I'm going to make it back. I had like 98% accuracy, exactly how everything would work. And thanks to that, we over a three year period, we took the company from being sort of bouncing around 10 million to almost $50 million run rate. Um, and actually from being cash flow negative to cash flow positive. Um, I then left uh, uh, and sh uh, shortly thereafter, however, uh, you know, the iPhone, of course, put an end to that. And <laughs> this whole business model went away, which is lesson learned. You can execute really, really well when the market conditions are in your favor. And then all of a sudden you have a real disruptor. It just all evaporates, right? <laughs> so.
When we return, CFO Bennett Diamond enters the mentoring round. We'll be back. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. We're going to jump to our mentoring round where I ask you several quick questions. And we begin with this one. You mentioned joining Selfish um, as a CFO there. or uh, You entered the CFO office for the first time, I think, there, actually. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. If you could go back in time and think about your first week as a CFO, your first month as a CFO. Is there a piece of advice you'd give yourself, something uh, as you felt all of that responsibility for the first time that you would tell yourself? What would it be? You know, if, I th if, I'm, if I'm honest or frank to myself, I think the, the, the trickiest part for me uh, when I had my first true CFO job was to actually understand what the job description was. This sounds a little funny, but it wasn't quite clear, maybe also because this was techie and it was a startup within a larger group, you know, I mean, then we spun off, but it wasn't really clear, what am I actually supposed to do here, right? So we, we had, of course, some accounting and, you know, we had a CEO, we also had a COO, um, and it was clear they needed reporting and it was clear that they needed, you know, uh, of course, you know, somebody who took care of the bank accounts and worked with the auditors, but it wasn't quite clear like, exactly. So what, what, what am I actually doing here? Like, what is really my, my role at the end of the day, right? And, um, and I think that was the, 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 the biggest thing um, for me to figure that out. You know, how do I actually add value? Did you ask the CEO? Is it something that you had to sort out with the, the rest of the C-suite? Or uh... yeah, sort of. I mean, we of course we we got there. It was pretty clear. And I, I mean, it was it was it was a lot of like, okay, we've done. We have these contracts. You know, renegotiate those. We have these problems. We've done. It was a little bit like, okay, here's a new guy, and uh, and let's just dump a lot of stuff on him as well, which we didn't fail. We we failed to address and those types of things, right? I mean, that's normal. That always happens when you are. In a, in a new job, not just in a finance job. That's always like that. And we did it. We figured it out over time. But the interesting thing is, again, I think in startups, it's oftentimes a little more fluid, right? And uh, in a way, you know, in startups, most of than elsewhere, work will find those who can actually accomplish it. And uh, and the and the and, the, and there's not this there's not these silos and these walls. And this is also how I ended up essentially doing like what I did and being uh, uh, you know helping drive revenue for the company because. Our, uh, our chief marketing officer, which kind of our head of sales as well, he and I, we got along really, really well. And, uh, and so we basically uh, had, had that opportunity to work together. And that, that, that was then my mission to actually drive the revenue. Right. We'd like to ask if you have a personal habit or routine that you believe has contributed to your professional success. So this is something on the personal side that you do or some habit that you have that you believe has paid dividends in some way to your professional your career? Um, I would say that I, um, I'm very analytical and I try to think things through. 
I'm not a person that gets into like analysis paralysis, but I do believe that before I pass judgment on anything or before I make decisions, I really like to at least build a little framework and understand, you know, what, why am I making this decision? I try to be very unemotional, always very fact-based. And I think that actually is very, very good because people in every organization I've worked with, they always feel like they can come to me and I'm not going to abuse my power of information or my status to, uh, to tell them that they're stupid or they're doing, I try to be like, you know, really listen to them, hear them out. So I think my, my willingness to learn, ask questions, absorb it, sleep on it, put it all together in some frameworks that make sense to me, right or wrong. Uh, I think that's really a thing which is really important. I think listening is very, very important, not just talking. Like listening is a key, key thing to success. And just being, I think, curious. I'm a, I, I, again, it sounds a little, little um, stri- uh, I don't know how I could say, uh, I don't seem to, to, to toot my own horn, but I think I'm generally interested in stuff. So I'm, I have a curious mind. Yeah, natural curiosity. I think natural curiosity really, really helps. You know. Is there a book you'd recommend to finance leaders? Doesn't have to be a business book. Uh, yes. So um, um, I'm a big believer to read stuff that is not necessarily uh, tied to uh, the actual job at hand. I, I'm a big believer you should read um, you should hit, read history books. Um, I'm a huge history buff. Um, and most recently, um, a little bit also instilled by what's going on with uh, with COVID, I read the book uh, that came out in 1978, uh, published by Barbara Tuckman, who is one of the great uh, American historians. And she wrote a book, uh, it's called, I have it here actually, A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. And it's essentially a book about uh, medieval Europe and during the Black Plague or during the 14th century, about 50 to 60 percent of Europe's population was wiped out uh, by uh, by a pandemic. Right. Um, And uh, what's really interesting about this book is how she actually uh, describes, however, how people in that moment. Right. They just went on with their lives. And uh, that when you when you take a step back and you you look at history, that things are rarely um, as bad as people think they are in the moment because life just goes on, right? And it's sort of, a, I think it's a it's a book I found it very interesting just because, again, I like history, but also sort of this perspective that she has that, uh, that you know, um, in the day-to-day, we are all, um, it's easy to uh, to shake our tree to rattle us because we, we are where we were in sort of in the moment. But when you take a step back and you sort of look from a year later or two years later or even a hundred years, everything seems to be sort of also within a band of sort of normalcy or it was manageable. Everybody came out of it, you know, and I think that's really what I like about, about history. Wow. Great, uh, great selection. Uh, you certainly have us intrigued. The book again is a distant mirror written by, uh, Barbara Tuckman. So we're up to our final question. Finally, we like to ask you to look forward and share with us what what are those priorities that you have for the coming year, the coming twelve months. What are your priorities as a finance leader? I want to complete, uh, for lack of a better word, really the transformation and the success path of our company. I want to really see that we uh, all the things that we uh, improved over the last uh, year or two. I mean, this is also predating, obviously, my arrival. Uh, I want to see that come to fruition. I think we've done everything we can i think we've done most of the stuff that i know how to do uh and so i feel very good about that we've built the basis to scale now i'd like to actually see us do it right and this is of course goes back to how well can we as a company uh continue to value our our position our value proposition and how 
is is the market uh, going to uh, be in our favor, right? I mean, we 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 again, we're not uh, an ad tech company. We're not suffering from advertising declines. We're a software company, but we're we're adjacent to it because the media business, the 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 main uh, you know operating um, models, still that you basically monetize eyeballs through advertising. And I know, of course, advertising has bounced back, but it's not quite where it was. So there is still this sort of hesitancy, you know. Uh, given the uh, un, uh, uncertain revenue forecasts, um, which is that's that's the only thing that really worries me is uh, our ability uh, to uh, to find the people who are not frozen, right? Whose budgets aren't frozen and just like they were to go. Bennett Diamond, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. listeners, do us a favor, be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.